This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon. And, you know, like many of us here, this last year's conference was my last in-person conference before the initial sheltering in place and the, the long and the challenging and, and loss-filled year that rolled out after that. Um, with my short time with you today, I want to acknowledge the toll that this last year has taken on so many people, particularly people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families. And I aim here to reaffirm the work uh, that we can and that we have to continue to do towards healthcare equity. For all of us here today, we know that um, that's a part of our individual work, no matter what clinical or administrative work that each of us do here. It's such a, an important part of our collective work and our collective um, commitment, the commitment that we make again and again for uh, patients and family and friends and colleagues with developmental and other disabilities. So, you know, thank, thank you for that today. Nothing to disclose here today. So um, I wanted to start out by panning out. Let's pan out and talk big picture. And uh, I'll start by sharing a little bit about the State Council for those of you that aren't familiar with the State Council's work. The State Council on Developmental Disabilities is established by both state and federal law as an independent state agency. And its job is to ensure that Californians with developmental disabilities are guaranteed the same full and equal opportunities for life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, just as all Americans. And we work on this through advocacy, capacity building, and systemic change. And we're also responsible for data collection and community engagement for the National Court Indicators Project and for the Movers Longitudinal Survey here in California. And our work is really most importantly in partnership with you all with Californians with intellectual and developmental disabilities, with their families, with the professionals that serve them, uh, really so that all of us can receive services and supports that we need to thrive and to actively participate and contribute in our communities. And you know, while we have many state plan goals for California, I mean, uh, all kinds, including education, employment, housing-related goals, public safety goals, so many others, um, it's the statement here that you can see that really captures our focus for health and healthcare equity. And so every person must have access to comprehensive, timely, quality, affordable healthcare, dental care, wellness services, and access to plain language information and supports to make informed decisions about their healthcare. And as a part of this, this requires informed consent and individualized appropriate medication, treatments, and adequate network of health professionals. So simple, right? And yet this is something that many of us will work on our entire lives. <laughs> you know, this speaks to the work that we all are doing and can do at every stage and every level uh, within healthcare, from providing more disability-specific training in med schools, um, more opportunities for residents to get firsthand knowledge of and work with disability-focused clinical and social service teams and services in the community, more opportunities 
to collaborate, to learn from, and to network with, uh, and to engage in community uh, continuing education uh, with other professionals that are committed to patients with disabilities. And most importantly, um, that commitment and work with patients and advocates and leaders in disability communities, especially those that are involved in disability justice work. And so this also includes people with multiple healthcare needs, those who require routine preventative care, mental and behavioral healthcare treatment, dental, durable medical equipment, reproductive health needs. And this is a big one here. Service system complexities must not delay, reduce, or deny access to services. And again, you know, that's big picture and we will continue to work all of us in different ways to reach this, to reach these, these ideals here. Um, and I'm so glad, you know, this is coming off of this tribute to Stacy's work and to disability justice as, as a movement. Um, as many of you know, but for those that don't, disability justice as a movement has come out of, uh, out of the second wave of disability rights and is led by disabled activists of color and disabled activists who are queer or gender non-conforming. And, you know, it's a movement I've learned so much from and continue to learn from and addresses multiple identities. Um, there's a lot of great work there on that. Uh, Sins Invalid has some great reading on this and uh, adapted from Patty Burns' uh, Disability Justice, a working draft. Um, this was published in Skin, Tooth and Bone, the the basis of movement is our people. That's a disability justice primer. They have it in that primer. It says the disability justice framework understands that all bodies are unique and essential. All bodies have strengths and needs that must be met. We are powerful, not despite the complexities of our bodies, but because of them. And that all bodies are confined by ability, race, gender, sexuality, class, nation state, religion, and more, and we cannot separate them. And I, I thought that was powerful. I, I wanted to share that with you because that resonates with me when I think of how to implement what I learned from the disability justice movement. So our state council regional offices, we hear every week from individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities and other disabilities from families about the challenges that they face navigating not one, but multiple systems of care. So for some people that's navigating Medi-Cal, Medicare, other insurance, advocating for access and functional needs so that they can even be seen in a healthcare environment, uh, navigating the complexities of the regional center system, uh, navigating the complexities of mental and behavioral healthcare systems, including county departments of mental and behavioral healthcare and coordinating with social service providers so that they can get to appointments and can secure follow-up treatment. That's, a, that's multiple systems with multiple criteria for access, multiple billing systems, multiple restrictions and delays. And many times, as we know, barriers to care coordination, especially for parents, um, for, for parents, children, um, adults and seniors that have co-occurring conditions. And so, you know, of course, such an important piece of the puzzle here is patient education. 
Um, many of you here today uh, work and, and have uh, some sort of role in patient education or patient advocacy, and thank you for that. Uh, we know that there's no singular home for this. There's no one responsible party for ensuring that patients with developmental and other disabilities and their families know their rights and that these are respected. And, and this is true for how to navigate those multiple systems we just mentioned. Uh, but also it's certainly important uh, when you think about the foundational knowledge of ADA, Title II and III, Section 504, California's Lanterman Act, and the laws and supporting regulations around consent. No matter what your role is, I encourage you to think about how you can play your part in both upholding those rights and in education about those rights for those that may not have that education, that may not have the, that knowledge. Um, we know that all patients, of course, need that support, but especially patients with disabilities and their families that are often up against so many more additional barriers to access and to appropriate care. So, you know, the advancements in the work of the medical community in the last couple of decades have been truly impressive. I don't need to tell this crowd. <laughs> and, and the work that's happening now, for example, I mean, just to name a few examples, in areas of disability and aging, in mental and behavioral health care, in trauma-informed care, in dentistry for those with special health care needs, um, in, in addressing healthcare access and functional needs, there's so much to be excited about and so many reasons for many of you here today to be incredibly proud of, uh, of what you've brought, what you've, what you've produced. We have many of you to thank for that, for those advancements over these last couple of decades, certainly. And you know, yet as we celebrate those wins big and small, we also have to keep our eye on persistent barriers that patients with disabilities in particular face. Um, we're in this role as a part of our community education work and technical assistance work um, to help people with disabilities and their families. Um, you know, we hear monthly, sometimes weekly, sometimes even daily about the continued struggle to address and to overcome disparity. Um, you know, as we gather at conferences like this to discuss new approaches and breakthroughs and treatment, promising practices, you know, our, our history, it's very easy for our history to feel like history. But we know that for many patients with disabilities, these reminders of our history crop up all the time when seeking care. And no matter what your role is or my role is on a given day, I hope we can make time to reflect on what we can do to continually root out institutionalized ableism, systemic barriers, and attitudinal barriers that patients and people with developmental and other disabilities face when seeking care. So, you know, I wanna share what, what we do know, what our offices, our regional offices of the State Council know to be persisting barriers to accessing appropriate and timely healthcare for many Californians with disabilities. Uh, I and my colleagues at the State Council, you know, we, we get this information both in qualitative and quantitative forms, firsthand, you know, secondhand, uh, but most importantly, we learn really directly from community members, self-advocates and leaders in disability communities and from the disability justice movement. Very thankful for that. And so that includes a, a variety of unconscious bias that people experience when they receive care or when discussing care and care options with their providers and, you know, those those uh, deeply ingrained ones still crop up, you know, false assumptions about quality of life, uh, 
providers' lack of training and lack of knowledge about disability, uh, institutionalized ableism, and providers' assumption about capacity and consent. Uh, we also see, you know, the importance of bioethics and medical ethics being connected to and informed by both disability rights and disability justice movements and accessibility barriers that continue to exist that we need to continue to work to, to, to work on, but that includes physical, attitudinal, programmatic, systemic. Um, you know, we know and many of us know through our work or through firsthand experience that people with disabilities continue to be an under-recognized health disparity population. And then, you know, something we've been talking a lot about lately with regards to the pandemic and vaccine distribution is California's plan currently uh, including health, healthy places index. So that's identifying and prioritizing 40% of our state's vaccine supply for the 400 zip codes that are most in need due to a variety of indicators, including social determinants of health. Um, and just, you know, for those that, that don't work with the Healthy Places Index, those indicators include everything from economic indicators, social indicators, educational indicators, indicators around transportation, um, neighborhood, housing, clean environment, healthcare access, climate change, and health vulnerability indicators. And that's you know, very critical. The governor recently reaffirmed his commitment to that, to, to using Healthy Places Index and prioritizing uh, that percentage of California's uh, COVID vaccine supply to go towards those 400 zip codes that are most in need um, as measured through Healthy Places Index. So let's shift to some, some practical to-dos, uh, some, some practical items that you can take away here and some asks that I have of you. Uh, you know, please reflect on what you currently do. You, many of you do so much and I'm learning from you all the time. Um, and let's think about what we can do even further or differently, even starting next week, right? After, after our wonderful couple of days here at this conference. Um, let's think about how can we help and continue to work towards making sure patients with disabilities and their families have knowledge of and access to tools that can make a difference, um, that can reduce health care disparities and improve access and care quality in general. So I wanted to highlight just a few of these of these tools. These are this is not an exhaustive list here. Um, I can't say enough about person-centered planning and health profiles and so many of us, no matter who we are, if we're self-advocates, if we're family advocates, if we are healthcare providers, if we are administrators, all of us can, can play a role in making sure that people have person-centered thinking and person-centered planning information and that patients have access to health profiles um, that, that they can fill out, that they can develop in ways that make sense for them to help advocate for them with their healthcare professionals. Supportive decision-making, oh, and, and it's been um, so wonderful to see the, the importance and the sharing of how valuable supportive decision-making is with this crowd here and through the years as we've discussed it at conferences like this. Advanced medical directives, power of attorney, um, you know, welfare and institution code, and, and in particular, 
uh, codes 4655 and 4541. You know, a lot of folks aren't familiar with those codes, but um, Welfare and Institution Code 4655 is specifically for patients with intellectual and developmental disabilities that are served by regional center systems. Um, and it targets those folks that specifically uh, may find themselves uh, incapable of giving their own consent and in need of medical, dental, or surgical treatment. And what it does is in certain situations, for example, uh, if that person um, has a parent or guardian or conservator, but that, that parent, guardian, or conservator isn't responding, or if uh, the person has no guardian, no conservator, um, but isn't able to consent to medical, dental, or sur surgical services based on, on their situation, or, um, or if because of their illness or because of a situation, they're, they're just not able to give their own consent, it allows a director of a regional center or their, their designee to be able to give consent uh, on that person's behalf, you know, under very clear conditions, very specific conditions. And then Welfare Institution Code um, 4541 that uh, relates to the state council. So that's for individuals that may need support uh, in the protection of their rights. And it's where in certain circumstances, the state council can appoint an authorized representative to assist that person in expressing and advocating for their own desires, their own decision-making, their own needs and their own preferences. And, um, and, and that person you know, has the ability to ask for that authorized rep or it can be asked on their behalf um, and it's really upholding their own, their own decision-making and making and rights. Um, and of course, they can also reject the assistance of an authorized rep too. So there's a, a finely tuned process for that as well. And then of course, there's a variety of health equity and healthcare access resources and supports in our own community. And we'll talk about a couple of those uh, in a little bit here. And so, you know, what have we seen this last year and what have we learned during the pandemic, right? Um, this is something I've talked with some of you here today and many others in our community. And uh, many of us feel that the pandemic has not created any new disparities. It's really amplified the existing disparities and where there was originally lack of representation, right? Um, Advocacy has to be consistent, it has to be intersectional, it has to be data rich, it has to be targeted. Um, there's, there's a lot that we need to do here. But you know, we know that many people developmental and other disabilities had to defer healthcare for this last year, uh, deferring uh, procedures, treatments, um, uh, testing, uh, as they sheltered at home for those, these last 12 months. We know that many people with developmental and other disabilities experience barriers to using paratransit and public transit due to cuts in service and restrictions in services this last year. And uh, just this week alone, I spoke with several people with developmental and other disabilities who had already endured the struggle to find an appointment slot for their vaccination. But now that they're eligible, you know, they, they had to work so hard to, to find that vaccination appointment slot and then now they're struggling to locate transportation or to book paratransit to get to their vaccination appointment. And then, you know, a lot of folks lost their care providers due to COVID or COVID exposure or because their caregivers 
feared exposure because of course many of their caregivers have to work multiple jobs because of the low rates and payment for this important work. Um, you know, in many cases, folks are desperately trying to coordinate for their own backup care and their own backup care plans. And in some cases, while they're sick with COVID, they're trying to coordinate who's going to help me get out of bed, who's going to help me shower, who can help me get to the hospital. Um, that's, that's such a burden, such a burden. And then, of course, we know that, you know, there's many people with disabilities and people without disabilities that don't have the technology or the support to use technology for telehealth services. Um, so we're, hap we're happy to see some further conversation about this and um, you know, so, some bills this legislative session, you know, examining that the digital divide for so many people and how that impacts their care. And then you know, there's other projects too, like the need for more clinical and lab and healthcare settings, including vaccination settings that can accommodate a variety of access and functional needs, including spaces and processes that can better accommodate patients with sensory sensitivity. That's, that's a lot of work that needs doing, and there's some great projects out there currently. So, you know, if we think about the recent work for equity vaccine access and distribution, you know, I just wanna spend a, a, just a, a quick minute talking about that because it's, it's so important. Um, Many of you here today, in addition with us, the State Council, we worked tirelessly alongside disability advocates and aging advocates to ensure that people with IDD and other significant disabilities would have access to the vaccine. Um, that's an ongoing effort. Um, the State Council, we are one of five disability and aging advocates who serve on the state's Community Vaccine Advisory Committee. Um, and then many State Council staff also serve on county public health advisory committees as well for vaccine equity. And of course, as part of that, we work with grassroots advocates and activists. And I just wanna take a moment to give a big shout out. Um, you know, we have to acknowledge who has contributed to so many of these wins lately, despite all of these huge challenges. Huge shout out to UCSF and to our partners at the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund and Disability Rights of California for their important roles in the work. Shout out to the advocates and activists that identified COVID information and vaccine appointment registration sites that weren't accessible and you know, held their county's feet to the fire and um, you know, made sure that, that accessibility is, is the baseline. <laughs> Shout out to the regional centers and to public authorities and IHSS programs that work to get out verification letters to paid and unpaid family health caregivers, care providers. Shout out to disability service providers who innovated and they redesigned services. In some cases, they redesigned services and supports overnight so that people wouldn't lose all of their services, all of their support. And to everyone that worked to ensure that as of March 15th, um, this just this last week, healthcare providers can use clinical judgment to vaccinate individuals between the ages of 16 and 64 that are deemed to be at the very highest risks to get sick from COVID-19, including those with severe health conditions, developmental disabilities, and other high-risk disabilities. And so importantly, that these higher-risk individuals in our community aren't made to jump through additional hoops or unnecessary gatekeeping and instead can self-attest their eligibility. You know, verification uh, documentation of their diagnosis or type of disability is not required. 
So anyone meeting the eligibility requirements can sign a self-attestation that they meet the criteria for their high-risk medical condition or disabilities. That's a huge, huge win. So important. And then just a couple of things that we can collectively ask as we move forward. And, and also, you know, how can my office support the work that you're doing around access and health equity for people with developmental and other disabilities? Um, you know, how can we help you in outreach, educational efforts? Can we host or co-host a workshop for you? Um, find ways for you to connect with your community in different ways. Uh, maybe you want to learn more about policy work in certain areas of health equity, you know, let us know so we can support you. Um, there's so many ways to get further involved. We, we've talked about some of the areas, but, you know, think about the others we haven't mentioned, like advocacy work to better support Californians with disabilities during this year's fire season and public safety power shutoffs, or how we can work together to improve services and safety when law enforcement and people with developmental disabilities interact, right? Anyway, we could we could go on and on here, um, and but just so that you know, whatever your interests and your skill sets are, there's an opportunity for you, and we'd like to support you with that. And then I have some resources here, just a few to shout out that I think are really terrific. Uh, it includes some of the wonderful work from UCSF's Office of Developmental Primary Care, from Listos California, which includes a really great toolkit many tools for people with disabilities and their families, including a great health profile that we got to partner with them on. COVID resources in plain language from the State Council, um, the really terrific National Council on Disabilities, uh, their series that came out late 2019 on bioethics and disability reports, um, really enlightening and, and very uh, data rich. Healthcare access and resources and data from DREDA, from Disability Rights, Education and Defense Fund. Um, some great work from some, some of our very own here <laughs> that have done some amazing work in advocacy and research for patients with disabilities. Um, so can't, can't recommend these resources enough and, and many more out there. And so I uh, just wanna say thank you. Thank you for the time. Uh, tell us how we can be involved in your equity work we want to know what you've been working on this last year in the pandemic and who else we need to hear from, who needs to be at the table, how can we make a difference in terms of representation together, and then what lessons in the pandemic do we want to keep? You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.